I invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians uh, this morning, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Uh, it's great to be able to get back into a rhythm again and be able to start working through a text of Scripture um, so that we might learn and grow. Um, last week, we did have the opportunity to start back into 1 Thessalonians, and I looked at verses 1 through 7a, or the first part of verse 7. Uh, in those verses, uh, we learn from Paul how to disciple others for God's glory. Uh, in particular, we learn that we must do the right things as we try to develop and uh, spiritually develop other people. Uh, doing the right things here included being bold with the gospel. He had boldness in our God to declare the gospel of God, even in the midst of much affliction. And Paul used divinely approved speech. Uh, he did not use flattery. He did not try to draw men and women in that way. He also was not seeking his own glory, verse 6. He didn't seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. Paul could have made demands as an apostle. He could have thrown his weight around, but he didn't. Verse 7 tells us that he behaved among the Thessalonians like a small child with them. And so we learned some things about developing others. This week, we will continue to learn from the way that Paul discipled the Thessalonian believers and be challenged with some final components to discipleship. There'll be four of them. I'll give them to you as we go along. If you're taking notes, simple outline, four points. Uh, we'll, we'll highlight them as we move along. I remember being challenged by a good friend when I was starting my senior year of Bible college. Of course, I was looking forward to my senior year because I'd worked hard to get ahead and the senior year was supposed to be easier for me than any of the other years. Um, I was also looking forward to being done and earning a degree. And so uh, I had these anticipations concerning that year. But my friend encouraged me the summer before to pray about intentionally, regularly meeting with 10 men for the purpose of discipleship. I don't know where he came up with 10. He just thought, you know, good number, 10 men. My friend used 2 Timothy 2 and verse 2 with me to challenge me to do so. And I love that verse. To this day, I love that passage where Paul tells Timothy to invest in faithful men who will teach others also. Okay, I love it because there's four generations of disciples there. Paul, Timothy, faithful men, others also. So my friend said, invest in people in your last year. So I prayed about this and God led so that I, in, I met weekly with nine guys for discipleship. And they were quite a misfit crew of freshmen and sophomores. Honestly, with some of them, I didn't share much in common at all. Some, uh, one or two, were nearly dismissed from school that year. But God used those relationships to grow me and to teach me as a follower of Christ. And I think God used it to teach them a few things as well. As a matter of fact, uh, Bible college is a long time ago for me now. But I still stay in touch with some of these men and uh, still uh, have a relationship with them uh, because of uh, this man, my friend, challenging me to get involved in discipleship. Over the years, I have found that this sort of relationship, one-on-one, man-to-man, woman-to-woman, in a local church is perhaps even more important. Colonial Baptist Church exists to display God's glory by making disciples through the gospel of grace. 
And so what I want to do in our time together today is I want to learn from Paul how to disciple. I mean, this is why we're here. This is why we gather to display God's glory by making disciples. And so I think we can learn from Paul how to disciple. There are four components to his discipleship that he demonstrated that will be good for us as well. I mean, if, if God is going to use you to disciple another person, to make a difference in their life spiritually, then you will need to demonstrate by God's power these four components as well. Number one is found in verses 7 and 8. The first component is mother-like care. Mother-like care. Look at verse 7, and we're starting in the middle of the verse. Like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you'd become very dear to us. Here, point number one. Paul talks about the mother-like care that we must demonstrate to other believers that we are discipling. Paul says that he was like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Just point out to you a few, a few things about that phrase. First, taking care of are very strong words. They mean to tenderly care for. These words were used uh, at times to describe the process whereby a mother would pull in her baby and warm her child with her own body heat. It's a very affectionate term. Uh, and uh, it, it speaks of the emotional warmth that Paul the Apostle felt toward the Thessalonian believers. Now the words nursing mother are also important because they reflect one word that could be used to describe a professional nurse during the first century. There's a bit of a debate with this little phrase, nursing mother, whether Paul is describing a mother or a hired nurse. But I think he makes it clear who he intends when he adds a little reflexive pronoun near the end. He says, I was like you, or I was with you, like a nursing mother who takes care of, of her own children or children of herself. So in this case, I think Paul's, Paul's saying, the nurse is the mother. Okay, and so Paul uses this metaphor here to describe his own ministry, his own tender care for them. Think about it. Think about the relationship of a mother and a child. She carries the baby inside of her for nine months. It's amazing. Think about the bond and the connection that mothers often have with their babies. A mother's love for her baby is normally a powerful thing. So much so that when even the world would reject their sons or daughters, a son on a witness stand, for instance, uh, being tried for some gruesome crime. It's, it's, not, it's nothing to see a mother pleading with the jury or the judge to spare the life of her child. This is a, a sweet love. It's a deep love. And this sort of deep love must mark our relationship with one another in the church at Colonial Baptist Church. So as we minister in Awana, our children's ministry, we, we minister in children's Bible studies, or we engage other people in adult Bible studies or in our grace gatherings, we must have this sort of tender grace and care for those people that we're investing in spiritually to see them 
uh, walk with the Lord. But, but then Paul in verse 8, he takes this metaphor a little bit further. He describes this mother-like care a little bit more. When he says that his love went so deep for them that he delighted. He delighted to share with them the gospel, he says first. I think Paul understood that foundationally what this group of people needed more than anything else in this world was the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he told them about it. This past week I had the opportunity to share the gospel of God with a young couple who had never really considered it before. As I went through the gospel of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, and I talked to them, they knew that they were sinners. The Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All men and women are sinners. They did not know, however, that their sin brought with it a penalty. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. And we learn in the Gospels that that death leads to an eternity in hell. This young man and young woman had never heard before that because of their sin, they were sentenced to an eternity in hell. They also had not realized that the only way to be saved or delivered from that was through the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Through the fact that Jesus came as the Son of God, and he died on a cross, and he rose again for our sins, and considered that. And so, this week, they're prayerfully considering that. But men and women, considering it is it's not enough. You must believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to deliver you from your sin. And so, it's quite possible that there are people here today who have never believed in the name of Jesus Christ to save them from their sin or repented of their sin and turned to Christ. So for you, I ask you, what would, what would prevent you? There's, there's no better day, right? This is a great day, rainy outside, but we could have joy in our hearts to know that you turn from your sin and you trust Jesus Christ alone so that you can be delivered and spend eternity in heaven. And so Paul comes into this ancient city of Thessalonica. He said, I delighted to give you that message. But do you notice how he says it in verse 8? Look down in your Bible again. He delighted not only, he was not only ready to give them the gospel, but his own self. That's how the ESV translates it here. He delighted to share his own soul, you might have in some of your translations, or his own life. <coughs> I think the ESV translation that I'm using today, your own selves, it's a good translation. Since the Greek word here, suke, designates the whole person, and because I think the word soul doesn't mean that much in modern English today, so I like our own selves. Paul says here that he, he not only shared his time and his energy and his health with them, he shared his whole person or being with the Thessalonians. He opened himself up to them and loved them with his whole person. And the reason he did this is the end of verse 8, because they had become dear to him. God had made them dear to him, so he opens up himself, and he tenderly cares for them. Men and women, this type of mother-like care should confront us 
if we have really shallow relationships and shallow conversations with other followers of Jesus Christ. So I want you to stop right now, and I want you to think about this premise for a while. Who are you caring for in this way right now, the way a doting mother cares for her children? Is anyone's spiritual well-being that important to you that you describe? I'm like a mother who just nurtures and cares for them. And, and this is not just for professionals. This is not just something pastors should do, right? Pastors should disciple with motherly-like care. For the scriptures say in the Great Commission that all followers or disciples of Jesus Christ are to go and make disciples. So who, who are you discipling now? If you had to put a name on a piece of paper, Write out a name of a person that you're developing spiritually. Who would you write? And if you shared that piece of paper with your family or your friends or that person, would they recognize it? Would they see? I mean, if this is why Colonial Baptist Church exists, to display God's glory by making disciples, and you've got no one on your paper, I wonder how we're doing. And so mother-like care. Second metaphor, said four points. Second one, verse nine. Also, a workman-like labor. Look in your Bible at verse nine. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. I think we can go through this one pretty quickly, but not only did Paul commit to mother-like concern, he also evidenced workman-like labor with the Thessalonians. We could do a word study of the words labor and toil, but we won't do that. I think they're pretty transparent words, and they're demonstrated by what follows it. It's pretty transparent when Paul shows us the nature of his labor and toil. The nature of his toil was that while he was sharing the gospel with them and planting a church there in Thessalonica, he also was working in his free time to support himself as a missionary tent maker. He made tents. The main idea here is that Paul supported himself while he's preaching the gospel in Thessalonica, and he worked late evenings and early mornings making tents so that he might minister the gospel free of charge in Thessalonica. I can't imagine how powerful of a testimony this must have been to them. I mean, could you imagine a well-known preacher coming and ministering to our church for three weeks and then in his free time, he was out in the grass mowing the yard. You know, imagine John MacArthur, John Piper coming in here. And you see them doing manual labor, and you ask them about it, you know. And they say, well, we just want to minister gospel free of charge. I'm sure it made a big impact on the Thessalonians. Paul worked long hours. He got less sleep because he loved the Thessalonians. And he wanted to minister to them. So discipleship is hard, requires labor and toil. You too must know that developing others is not easy work. It will be hard. This means when you face pressure and difficulties, you will keep on. Instead, I think we all know people in the church who started a ministry in the church or in the life of another, and one little thing went wrong and they gave it up. 
well, they didn't thank me upon the fourth time of teaching the class, so, and I exaggerate for effect. Or, my life is just getting too busy, too complicated, I cannot continue investing or ministering in this ministry opportunity or with this person. We often, I think, pull away from discipling others when things get hard for us. I think that may be okay for like a season, but if you are going to make a difference by God's grace enablement in the life of another person, if you're going to disciple someone else, that means that even when difficulties come, you will labor and toil in it. I want you to keep in mind that Paul discipled the Thessalonians while he was being opposed by Jews, driven out of the city, chased to another city, and stoned. I wonder how many of us would have just quit this whole discipleship project Thessalonica with all that opposition. But Paul just presses on. And so if you're going to disciple another, it will require hard work and toil. It's like, you need like a hard hat for it. Enter into the life of another person, you want to help them in some, some sort of spiritual issue they have or they, they want to grow spiritually, you should expect difficulty and persecution and trial. We hired someone recently with military background. I go into his office and he's got all this military gear around his office and it just reminds him that ministry is a spiritual battle. He's got a helmet in there and what I think at this point, it's like we need like a workman hat. If you're going to disciple someone else, it will require laboring and toiling. That's what it requires. But then we move on to point three. Third component that Paul demonstrates is verse 10. I'll just call it this way. Christ-like conduct. Again, we can move quickly through this. Look at verse 10. He says, you are witnesses in God also how holy, righteous, and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. It's also necessary for Christian disciples to evidence Christ-likeness in their personal lives and outward conduct. Paul here says the Thessalonians and God can be witnesses of his holy, righteous, and blameless behavior. Where holy means devoutly, speaks of Paul's fidelity to walk in a devout manner before them. The word righteous means justly, here Paul emphasizes his conduct toward other human beings when he was in Thessalonica, and then he says he's without blame or he's faultless in the way he behaves himself when he's with them in the city. He behaved in an impeccable manner. That's why I call this Christ-like conduct. This last word, blameless, probably functions as a comprehensive summary. Paul's conduct was free of any accusation. And what becomes obvious here is that there were not persistent or obvious character flaws in Paul that the world around him could latch onto and say, you don't look like Christ. Or that's not right and holy. Now, Christ-like conduct is important if you're going to disciple someone else. Sadly, I think some of the strongest proponents of transparency and authenticity in life are often the ones living in unholy, unrighteous, unrighteous, and blameworthy ways. It's like, man, 
I know you're committed to transparency, but in this case, I really wish you weren't. Disciple someone else. Paul was transparent, but he was transparently holy, righteous, and blameless in his conduct. And so, if we should expect God to use us to make a difference in the life of someone else, we need to live like Christ by God's grace and goodness, right? It's, it's his enablement that will help us. But if we're not holy and righteous and blameless, what sort of impact do we think we can make? So Christ-like conduct, that's number three. And number four, last point, verses 11 and 12. The last metaphor he gives is of a father. In discipleship, we should also demonstrate father-like instruction. Look at verse 12. It says, For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. For all the mothers that are here, you're like, yes, finally, this perfect Mother's Day sermon. You're going you're gonna to talk about fathers. Go get them. Okay. Well, we have to remember, this is a metaphor that Paul gives for discipleship. And he, do, he uses the metaphor of a father to talk about the type of instruction that he gave to the Thessalonians. So not only did Paul sense the need to nourish the Thessalonians tenderly as a mother, he also felt the obligation to instruct them like a father would. In verses 11 and 12, Paul describes many important theological concepts, so we'll slow down a little bit here. He describes walking worthy of God. He mentions the kingdom of God and God's glory. Those are like major theological themes. I said, quaintly, as we come to these, I want to draw out three aspects for you to notice about this father-like instruction. The first is the manner of the father-like instruction. That's the first part. Like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you. We can go through this uh, quickly. I'll go through my notes in a fast way here. I'll just point out a few things. First of all, I, what really struck me as I studying this week is, you know, we've got this father metaphor and Paul saying, this is like how I behaved among you. And, and but the words, each one of you, or each of you, maybe really think for a while about the comprehensive nature of Paul's ministry to Thessalonian church. It's not like he just, well, I'm going to come in and minister to a group of people. No, each one of you. Then he describes the nature of his uh, interaction as a father in that he exhorted, comforted, and charged them. And fathers, I would encourage you to study those words and to think about that sort of role in instructing your children. The word exhorting means to beseech or urge. He urged his Thessalonians like a father would. Uh, comforted them means to encourage. Important for a father to encourage his children. And then the final one really got me this week as well, to charge them, which means to insist on something, to implore them. This last one, I think, is the strongest of the three terms since it suggests the idea of insisting or requiring a certain cause of action be adopted. Summary here is Paul's talking about the manner of his instruction as a father. I mean, he uses very strong language. 
And as a father, I, I, you know, I can say I, I do have a very strong desire for my children to walk with the Lord. Fathers, I ask you today, I mean, have there been times where you have broken down in tears, imploring your child to do something? I can imagine the sort of anguish of heart that we would experience if our child goes away from the Lord. If my child did that, I think I would plead with my child to turn back with God. And I think that's what the word imploring is, pleading. But you say, that is all fine and good, but I'm not a father, or my children are grown. What does this text mean for me? And I say, well, Paul was not the earthly father of the Thessalonians either. He was not their earthly father. Do you have spiritual relationships with others where you implore them to be what God wants them to be? Where you say the words, you observe something in their character, say, and that doesn't fit with Scripture. Where you use the Scripture to instruct them. Do you have relationships like that? This is deep commitment. It's family commitment. And this is a sort of commitment that must describe us as believers in this church. That's the manner of his instruction. But then, uh, what, what is the content of it? So think of this metaphor Paul uses. is like, like a father exhorted, comforted, and charged each one of you. But then he says, and he gives the content. Well, what, what did he tell them? And you just look in the text. It's right there. To walk worthy of God. And this struck me this week as a dad and as a discipler. What should we tell them? You're like, okay, I got this discipleship thing. I want to work out. What should be the content of what I say? Walk worthy of God. And I just want to point out a few things to you about this phrase. Uh, one thing I'll say about it is this is not just Paul being like casual, like, you know, I need something to put in his content of what I told you or to summarize. No, this is language that he uses over and over and over again in his Bible. As he writes, the different churches walk worthy. Matter of fact, I'm going to show you. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4. We're going to do a little journey here. Quick journey through the scripture. Ephesians 4. Many of you know the book of Ephesians. You know Paul's close relationship with them. He loved this church. He spent more time in Ephesus than he did any other city in his church plants and his return trips. More time in Ephesus than anywhere else. When Paul has to say goodbye to the Ephesian elders in Acts, he breaks down weeping. He loves this church, and so he gives them this book. In this book, the first three chapters are doctrine. He follows it with uh, practical instruction, or theology than practice. And right when that begins, Ephesians 4, 1, look, at, look in your Bible. He says, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you that you walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This passage is similar to the passage in 1 Thessalonians in that both of them mention the metaphor of walking. They both use the word worthy. And uh, they both are similar in that they're ch challenging the, the, uh, the audience to walk in a worthy or suitable way. Finally, both of these passages also speak about calling. Here in Ephesians, they're to walk worthy of their calling, whereas in 1 Thessalonians, it's walk worthy of a God who calls. 
Okay, so the point we're doing in Ephesians, I just want you to see, Paul's not just like walk worthy of God. That's a phrase with no significance for me. He, I mean, he really means it, and he uses it with multiple different churches. In fact, go to the very next book in your New Testament, your Ephesians, flip over to Philippians. In Philippians, Paul's in jail, and he's writing to the church of Philippi. This epistle, he writes from this prison cell. Look at Philippians 1.27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Look at the beginning of that verse. He says he does not use the word for walk, but he uses a similar metaphor, manner of life. He does use the word worthy. Let your manner of life be worthy, and he changes the object. It's not worthy of God. Here, it's worthy of the gospel. This is the sort of language that Paul used, I think, as a father would with children. This is the instruction that he wanted to communicate to them. You have to live in a certain way, in a in a way that is suitable in light of your great God or of the gospel that saved you. Go to the very next book. Just flip over to Colossians. Flip over to Colossians for a moment. Colossians 1 and verse 10. Colossians 1 and verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And there's so many parallels we could point out here. He talks about walking in a manner worthy of something. Here it's the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. You think walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, that might be Jesus in this text, but regardless. Now skip ahead. Skip 1 Thessalonians. Remember, that's the book I'm preaching on right now in case you got lost. Go to 2 Thessalonians. This is the last one we'll do. 2 Thessalonians, look at verse 5 of chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. Well, what is? That you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you're also suffering. Verse 11. To this end, we always pray for you that our God might make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. From these texts, brothers and sisters, it becomes quite apparent that Paul's normal practice was to call believers to walk in a way which reflects some of the great concepts or truths found in the new covenant. Walk worthy of the gospel. Walk worthy of the kingdom. Walk worthy of the Lord or walk worthy of God. And men and women, these are not light things. These are big things. So in 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 12, when he says walk worthy of God, he's challenging us to live suitable lives that reflect the character of God. Believers must conduct themselves in a manner that corresponds to the character of their God. You think about God is our great and perfect founder, not only of the universe, but of Christianity and our walk with God. And so then this call should challenge us to know him and live in this world in ways that represent him well. Walk worthy of God. I'm over time, so I'll just give you my final point here, the incentives that he gives them. 
Well, why should I walk worthy of God? And there are two of them. Because this is the sort of God who has called you into his kingdom. Don't have time to get into the whole kingdom thing here. I've got a whole bunch of notes that I'd love to give you. Maybe I will this week. I think what he's doing is he's describing the eternal or everlasting kingdom that believers will experience. And Paul's saying, you know what? I, I, I challenge you to walk worthy of God because God has called you into this kingdom in the future. And he's called you into his glory in the future. I think it describes the glories of heaven. Okay? And so what, what he's basically saying here is, since God has done these things, and he, you have such a great God who loves you in this way, won't you serve him today? Victor Furnish, one of the commentators I read, said it this way. He said, God's impending kingdom already qualifies and claims the present and should therefore make a difference already in the daily lives of those who have been called. So God's kingdom and glory are qualifying and claiming your present. Does that describe you? As we close, won't you commit to ministering God's word with care and instruction to others in this assembly? Instead of running out the doors as soon as we're done and going through another week without spending meaningful time with any other believer in this church, won't you choose one or two or five other people to develop? Men and women high-powered, spirit-enabled disciplers are obvious for the effect that God is producing through their lives. Through their mother-like concern, workmen-like labor, Christ-like conduct, and father-like instruction, God changes others' lives. To free people from life-dominating sins and addictions. To liberate men and women from spiritual bondage. To grow young believers from their naivety and their lack of knowledge of God and his word into vibrant, mature followers of Christ. At CBC, Colonial Baptist Church, we exist to display God's glory by making disciples through the gospel of grace. Won't you join the team? Won't you get off the sidelines? Won't you pray that God will use you to make a difference in the life of another person for the glory of God? Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for how well people have listened this morning. I thank you for what Paul says. He simply narrates how he behaved among the Thessalonian believers. He was there for three short weeks. Yet as he reflected back upon it, he could say that you enabled him to care for them like a nursing mother cared for their children.
to work, labor, and toil night and day so that he would not be a burden to them. To demonstrate holy, righteous, righteous, and blameless conduct among the Thessalonians and to give them father-like instruction about a God who loves them and who is calling them into kingdom and glory. Lord, I pray that this, these sort of appeals, these sort of metaphors would be true of the way we would disciple others here. Of course, Father, we cannot do this in our own strength or power. We need your spirit, and so we pray for that this week as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.